the doctrine in the book. So, all right. Well, Father, thank you for tonight. And uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for uh, epistles like 2 Corinthians because it, it reveals that people do repent and come around. And, uh, and we love to see that as you've committed to us the, the word and the ministry of reconciliation. And uh, so, Lord, thank you for that. And I pray that you teach us as we uh, meander through this uh, important epistle. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you remember uh, 1 Corinthians was a book of rebuke and correction. Paul was very stern. Uh, It was very, very confrontational. Uh, The only other uh, New Testament letter by Paul that would uh, even come close to the degree of intensity would be the book of Galatians. Uh, And so I'm not sure which one is more... um, Severe as far as Paul's tone and uh, his demeanor. Uh, both are pretty, pretty strong. I would say, though, the language in Galatians is probably stronger. But anyway, uh, we're going to Galatians on Sundays after the book of Hebrews. And then I think I have four more letters to teach and one gospel, and I'll have taught every verse in the New Testament. So that's kind of exciting for me. And some of you have been here for the whole thing. So that's pretty exciting, you poor people. So I pray for you often. So, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul is actually writing to a repentant church, uh, for the most part, that has been and is still being reconciled. And so Paul here is the optimist, whereas in 1 Corinthians, he was kind of the pessimist. And so, yeah. There still exists a faction in the church, a minority of people who are challenging Paul's apostleship. And so that's toward the end of the letter. Paul is put in a position where he has to defend the fact that he was called as an apostle. And uh, I think that's kind of an uncomfortable place to be, but he does. And um, so, yeah. So let's get in real quick to our tradition of authorship and date, and then we'll look at the doctrinal contribution. So I think you guys already know who wrote 2 Corinthians. Uh, As we've said before, when it comes to the the letters that Paul wrote, there's very, very little challenges uh, among anyone, whether it's uh, from the second, third, and fourth century uh, up to modern scholarship. Nobody really doubts it. I've mentioned before that there is a very small uh, and, and fading school of, I almost said thinkers, but I've read their stuff, and it's a, a German group, skeptics. huh? They're skeptics, uh, but they just have the wildest kind of ideas about scripture and history, and so most, even, even the, the most ardent skeptics avoid them because they just seem to be so far out there. But anyway... Uh, Paul himself identifies himself immediately, chapter 1, verse 1. He mentions himself again in chapter 10, verse 1, clearly as the author. Uh, Paul's name appears on all the ancient manuscripts of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Like always, the style, the vocabulary, it's very consistent with what we see in all of Paul's letters. Uh, All of the early fathers of the church, they attribute authorship to Paul. And... um, 
Yeah. And I don't know if you guys have read much critical scholarship of the Bible, uh, but it's amazing the number of hours that scholars on both sides have spent uh, running the scriptures through different tests to see, to prove or to disprove its authenticity. And it's amazing how uh, thoroughly it's been checked and the Bible continues to come through to us soundly. And so I have read enough of the skeptics, I've read enough of those in opposition and those in favor. And so when you crack your Bible open, just trust what you read, okay? Uh, I just, I have no lack of confidence in any of the scriptures. And people that do are either uninformed uh, or they're demon-possessed, I think. So uh, it's pretty amazing. The date, uh, 2 Corinthians was written about a month or so after 1 Corinthians, okay? It was very closely written afterwards. And um, yeah, we would say about 55, 56 AD. Um, now, it seems when I read 2 Corinthians, some people think that Paul wrote it when he was in Philippi or some other place in Macedonia. I kind of feel like he started writing it in Ephesus and he wrote some more in Troas and then he wrote some in Philippi and then some in Thessalonica. Uh, I just feel like he was writing it on the way. And in fact, he may have uh, written the latter uh, section after he received more information from Titus. And uh, so it's interesting, the way that it's written. Uh, there seems to be a sense of urgency. It seems to be very progressive. And so I'm not alone in that. A lot of people think that he wrote it on the, on the way. And, but whatever. So I want to look at some doctrinal contributions tonight. Uh, perhaps nothing new in uh, Corinthians, but there are some interesting things that are there. I want to look at uh, what Paul has to say about the new covenant in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, the Spirit's departure, not talking about the Holy Spirit, but ours. Uh, and then uh, substitutional atonement. Uh, Paul, in one verse, seems to, it seems that he's taking for granted that his audience has already been thoroughly taught on it. And he throws out one verse to remind them of what Christ did. And then we'll talk about uh, the, a Trinitarian verse in the text. So let's talk about uh, the New Covenant. Now, there's been no shortage of this discussion uh, in this church of late, especially with the book of Hebrews, especially we were, when we were in uh, Hebrews chapter eight, where Paul makes some statements that I think almost seem to shock us when we hear it. And uh, so anyway, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul is saying, very similar uh, things about the two covenants that we saw in Hebrews 8, where the author, you remember, he quoted Jeremiah 31, where God is promising a new covenant, he says, to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, which he says, this new covenant would not be according to the covenant that I made with your fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. Okay? So the new covenant, he's saying it's going to be altogether different from the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, that is where he gave the Ten Commandments and all of the terms and conditions that flow out of that. 
And the author of Hebrews, uh, he interprets this promise of a new covenant to mean that the old covenant in its entirety would be made obsolete and it would vanish away. He says, Hebrews 8, verse 13. And it's interesting, this whole issue has become uh, a tremendous point of contention in the church. Um, some say that only the ceremonial aspects of the old covenant are made obsolete. Um, but then, so we try to divide the law, which is a man-made division. There's, that division is never found in the scriptures. But there's, there's ceremonial, there's civil, there's moral, there's domestic, there's all these different things. And so when one person says this is fulfilled, uh, you don't see him doing a, a, a whole bunch of things that aren't in the law. And it seems like people just kind of arbitrarily pick and choose. Uh, but when it comes to the scriptures and you say, well, why would you do this and why would you not do that? They're, they really have troubles. But when you come to Hebrews chapter 8, the author says, it's all obsolete. It's all. You don't have to try to figure any of that stuff out. It's just every ounce of it has been made obsolete. And I think the best way to, to get your fingers wrapped around it is to really research what the word covenant and testament means, both in the Old Testament, uh, the first half of your Bible, and in the second half. The word testament and covenant are actually used synonymously in the New Testament, and when either word is used referring to the Old Covenant, it always primarily talks about the Ten Commandments, almost every single time, okay? And then when you go to the Old Testament, when Moses referred to the covenant that was made with the children of Israel, after God brought them out of uh, Egypt, the covenant made at Mount Sinai, he was talking about the Ten Commandments. This is what he says. So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord wrote on the tablets of the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So what's the covenant? The Ten Commandments, that's right. And, uh, but it's not just the Ten Commandments, uh, it's the Ten Commandments specifically, but more generally, we would say the Ten Commandments is an umbrella of all the other terms and conditions of what we call the Old Covenant, okay? That's the sacrificial system, it's the civil law, it's, it's everything, okay? It's everything. All that we would say that uh, is in the Torah. So what was made obsolete is the Ten Commandments and the terms associated with them. So nothing of the Old Covenant is preserved okay, by the establishment of the New Covenant. And so the question that people have is, well then, well, what about morality? Well, morality was the same prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay. And it's the same after. So morality isn't done away with. Just the Ten Commandments on, in a covenantal sense is done away with. Okay. And if you don't remember that discussion from uh, Hebrews chapter 8, it's online. So I take a whole Sunday to talk about that. But anyway, in, um, I lost my place here. Oh yeah, so coming back to 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul then begins to uh, talk about both the Old and the New Covenant. And uh, when referring to the Old Covenant, he has the Ten Commandments in mind. So listen as we go through this. You can turn there if you want. Uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
In verse 2 and 3, Paul says the new covenant is written by the Spirit of God on fleshly tablets of the heart, whereas the old covenant was written on tablets of stone. Which covenant was written on the tablets of stone? Just the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. In verse 6, Paul says that the new covenant by the Spirit of God gives life, but the letter of the old covenant written on stone kills And then in verse 7 through 11, he calls the Ten Commandments the ministry of death and condemnation. And he says it's passing away and is temporary. But the life-giving ministry of the Spirit, he calls the ministry of righteousness, and it is permanent, he says. So the new made the old obsolete. Now, um, I think I was talking to Mike about the... um, Uh, what's called planned obsolescence. Have you guys heard about that in modern uh, engineering? Um, You remember how your Maytag used to run for 30 years? Okay, they don't anymore. Uh, And it's because of this philosophy of planned obsolescence where they actually build a flaw into whatever they're building to ensure that it breaks down, okay? And that's why things last about uh, 10 years. They're not... Uh, designed to last. They're designed to fail. Well, the Old Covenant wasn't exactly meant to fail. Uh, It's Israel that failed. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. When you mingle sinful man with the law, they can't, they're not cohesive. They don't function together. Uh, You can read all about that in Romans 7 and 8. But God did plan for the Old Covenant to be made obsolete by the establishment of a new It was planned obsolescence. Let me give you an example of this. When I had my older iPhone, I purchased speakers that would plug into the the earphone receiver on my phone. But when I got my new iPhone, it didn't have the old earphone receiver. The new iPhone integrated the earphone receiver with the charging port. What did that do to my speakers? It made them obsolete. Okay, they're no longer compatible. Okay, I can't use them together. Well, because of the new covenant, as the author of Hebrews says, in Christ's blood, the old covenant is obsolete. It's no longer compatible with the things of God and the people of God. And that's why we we hear Paul say things like, you're not under the law, but under grace. And under means jurisdiction, under authority of. Okay, Romans 6, 14. John said, for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, Matthew 5.17. Paul told the Galatians, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, the tutor being the Ten Commandments, Galatians 3.24. And so what Paul concludes in both Romans and Galatians is the law cannot provide legal righteousness, nor can it provide practical righteousness. Okay? The law prescribes righteousness, but it cannot provide it to us. Okay? And that's the role and the function of grace. Okay? And I think that, of course, grace has been mistreated in evangelicalism, but biblically, grace is not, uh, it's not leniency, it's not um, 
Um, I'm trying to think of the term that some a theologian used with it. Anyway, Paul said in Titus 2:11 through 13, it's the best verse that describes the function of grace. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, and it teaches us to look forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says it saves and it sanctifies. It saves the, the grace of God that brings salvation. It's appeared to all men. And it, the word teaches there can be uh, translated as chastise, discipline, admonish. Here it says teaches to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. So it teaches us to stay away from unrighteousness and it teaches us to live holy. So it, grace, its function is to save us and to sanctify us. So if grace saves and sanctifies, you can find no use for the law for the believer. You can find use for it with an unbeliever, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Galatians 3.24, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And uh, there has no use in the context of those who are believers. Therefore, the new covenant of grace outshines its superior and replaces the old Okay. The covenant of grace is sufficient and it's final. If you have questions about that after service, uh, I'll be here all night. Let's talk about the Spirit's departure. I need to clarify. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 1 through 11, Paul talks about the location of our spirit before and after our body dies. Now, there's a controversy uh, that is presented primarily by the Seventh-day Adventists and a few other fringe movements who believe that the spirit remains in the body after death and resides there in a state of sleep until the resurrection of our bodies at the last day. It's a doctrine called soul sleep. Has anybody heard of soul sleep? Okay. Now, just mind you, this doctrine, if you believe in this, it doesn't determine if you're saved or not. Okay. Uh, if you believe it, I mean, I think you're wrong. But uh, it's not gonna, you're not going to go to hell for believing it. Okay, so it's not a fundamental. Um, it's not a belief that's traditionally held by evangelicals for a number of reasons, uh, some of which come out of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says, So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Okay, so Paul says that while we're at home in this body, that is, when our body is still kicking, uh, we're absent from the Lord. But then in verse 8 he says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when we're absent from this body, which we hope to be, okay, and Paul says that we're groaning to get out of this thing. In verse 4, the older you get, do you notice you're groaning a little more? Okay. Okay, Paul talks about the same thing in Romans chapter 8, that all of every created thing, because it's subject to the curse of sin, is looking forward to the full redemption. 
Okay? Creation is looking forward to the redemption, the full redemption of the sons of God. That is, in the regeneration when the body is made new. Because when this puppy is made new, we'll get a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? So Paul says we're looking forward to that. But he says when we're absent from this body, we're present with the Lord. In verse 10, Paul says part of the reason for this that we're separated from our bodies is so that we can appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that accords perfectly with Hebrews 9.27 that says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. You die, and the moment after your passing, the spirit is separated from your body and is translated into the presence of God for judgment. Okay. Paul told the Philippians that he was eager to depart and to be with Christ. Was he talking about departing with his body? No, he says, I want to be separated from this thing. I want to get rid of it. Okay? That's Philippians 1.23. So looking forward to the passing of his physical body so that his spirit could depart and be with the Lord. And so once the spirit departs to be with the Lord... Uh, it remains with the Lord until the first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? Come on, you theologians. First and second Thessalonians. For those who are alive and remain, right, will be caught up, but we will not precede those that have died. Okay? So at the rapture, it is the first resurrection. We, the, the, those who are alive, their body is transformed into a spiritual body. And then those that were, the, the dead bodies that are in the grave, they rise, a spiritual body, and then they're reunited with their spirit when they're translated into heaven, okay? The body will be reunited, but it won't be reunited in the same way as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay? So once we go to be with the Lord, we will always remain with him. So the challenge here for those that uh, believe in soul sleep, they, they have nowhere to account for this separation, this departing from the body and being with the Lord. There's just none of that in their theology. Um, so anyway, something interesting to think about. We could talk about many other verses to defend uh, against soul sleep. But like I said, it's not totally fundamental. Also, notice that Paul is trying to encourage the body, the church rather, that when they die, where will they be? How much encouragement would it be that you could be soul sleeping for a thousand years, two thousand years? No, Paul says, I'm eager to depart and be with the Lord. Okay, okay substitutional atonement. Uh, by the way, this is a fundamental of our faith. This is not something that can be rejected and, uh, and st still be saved. Um, so in evangelical theology, we talk much about substitutional atonement. Maybe you've heard the word vicarious. It's, it's, it's a synonym for substitution. And this is something we should talk about often, but often I think there are elements of Christ's atonement that are omitted, uh, even perhaps overlooked or unknown okay, to a lot of people. Now, I, I have to confess, there are certainly many mysteries about Christ's atonement that we just, we can't fathom at this time. They haven't been revealed to us. Uh, they'll come to light when we're in the Lord's presence. What we ought to know, though, are the things that are declared to us in the scriptures. 
It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we kind of briefly delve into the substitutional atonement of Christ. Paul says this. I'm sure you're familiar with the verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Two things are happening there, okay? At least two things. Substitutional atonement accomplishes two things for the believer. Now, it has the same potential for all people, but its efficacy is only applied to and experienced by the believer. So let's, let's exegete the verse uh, in light of what we already know from Romans 21 through Romans 4.25, okay? So he says, he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, that is, Jesus was sinless, to be sin for us. So God the Father made Jesus sin for us. Jesus became the very thing that God detests. He detests sin, amen? Okay. He became the object of his Father's righteous indignation. But Jesus didn't literally become sin. So what does that mean? Uh, Peter adds to this. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then he says, by whose stripes we're healed. That's 1 Peter 2, 24. And what he was doing there is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 5, which is an important chapter on substitutional atonement. But how is it that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the cross? How did they get there? Well, again, he didn't literally bear them just as he didn't literally become sin. So what then? So these are all figures of speech that refer to what God the Father was doing, okay? He was imputing the guilt of our sin to Jesus' account. He was imputing the guilt of our sin to Jesus' account, and he was holding Jesus accountable for our crimes, for our crimes, so that, and this is key, so that Jesus could be legally or judicially punished for our sins, legally, okay? Which would then satisfy the demands of justice against us. On the cross then, Jesus was executed for the sins of humanity. Okay, yeah. As I said before, though, his atonement is only applied to those who believe, sufficient for all, but applied only to the believer. The rest of our verse says that we, the believer, might become the righteousness of God in him, that is, in Jesus. Now, in the context, we is a reference to the believer. The believer is said to become righteousness, just like Jesus became sin. Again, we don't literally become the righteousness of God. This is following the same kind of mechanism uh, used by the Father for Christ. So just as the guilt of our sin was imputed to Jesus by his Father legally, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to the believer by the Father. This the Father calls righteousness in Romans chapter 3. When he imputed the righteousness of Jesus to the believer, he says, I was demonstrating my own righteousness to the world. Okay. 
So let me say this a few other ways. Just as Jesus suffered the consequences for our sins, we enjoy the reward of his righteousness. He died because of our sins. We live because of his righteousness. God the Father declared his son to be guilty of all sin and he punished him accordingly. God the Father declared us to be innocent of all sin and he rewards us accordingly all because of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, if you want to read Romans 3.21 through 4.25, uh, that's a dissertation of everything that's said in one verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Very interesting. Okay, the Trinity. You guys know anything about the Trinity? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 14. It's what Paul closes with. And uh, I thought I'd take an opportunity to talk about the Trinity with you. Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We see all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in a single verse. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it says God, now presumably God the Father, for we don't really have any other choices, do we? And then the Holy Spirit. Now, when, when every religious group out there come, that uses the Bible to some degree as its foundation for its faith, when they come to a verse like this, they have to wrestle with what is called the Godhead. They have to come to some explanation for this. They have to define it somehow. And what separates biblical Christianity from the cults is what we call Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism, okay. Now there are three major groups with three different views uh, of the Godhead that are always trying to correct Trinitarianism, okay. Let's look at them. You've probably heard of a few of these. These are the non-Trinitarian groups. There's Mormons. Uh, LDS, I've learned that in the Northwest, not everybody knows that Mormons are LDS. How many of you guys didn't know that? You don't have to raise your hand. Then there's the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then there's the Oneness Pentecostals. Uh, people are like, who are the Oneness Pentecostals? I thought Pentecostals were Christians. Uh, when you drive, uh, I've mentioned them before, when you drive south on I-5, south of Chehalis, you see Jesus' name only, Pentecostals. They are oneness Pentecostals, okay? We'll talk about them in a minute. Mormonism, uh, yeah? You mean right there by the post office? Yeah, yeah apostol most apostolic faith are oneness in their theology. Yeah, they're just, they're just so rare anymore. Yeah. So let me, let's, we'll talk about them in a minute. Uh, Mormonism, they believe, uh, they teach what is called tritheism. Now, I've never met a Mormon that uses that terminology, but this is what they believe, uh, which argues that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are three uh, distinct or different gods, each possessing individual personhood. So each god possesses similar but different natures. For example, the Father and the Son all have physical bodies, whereas the Holy Spirit has no body. 
okay? And they don't seem to be equal in power, okay? None of them are eternal, okay? But were brought into existence through spiritual procreation by their heavenly mother and heavenly father, okay? Spirit babies. Also, while Mormon theology affirms uh, but one Godhead for the people of earth, they believe there are countless gods that exist in the universe, okay? Which is really polytheism, uh, the belief in many gods. Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, similar to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God the Father and the Son are two different, distinct gods. How many of you guys have read a, um, what's their Bible? New World Translation. So John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a God. Okay, so they believe they're two distinct gods, each with a unique personality. Uh, they also believe that the Son is an inferior God to the Father. The Holy Spirit is not a God or a person. Okay, to them, he is just the power of God. Uh, they refer to him as active force. Active force. So they'll tell you, Trinity is not in the Bible, and you tell them, neither is active force. Okay? The Oneness Pentecostals, um, they adhere to a doctrine called modalism. Modalism. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. You guys know who he is? T.D. Jakes. Okay? He's a Pentecostal uh, TV evangelist type preacher. He's a modalist. Okay? Uh, modalism was first known as uh, Sabellianism from a guy named Sabellius. He was a third century priest and he was condemned as a heretic, rightly so. Uh, that was from the Eastern Church. The Western Church called it uh, Patriopassianism, uh, all of which was opposed by the Athanasian Creed, okay? which is an excellent document, by the way, regarding the Trinity. Uh, and that's your homework for this week is to is to read the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed. It was so well done that many um, seminaries, uh, conservative seminaries, and churches use that in their statement of faith for the Trinity. Uh, and we have it cited in ours for, for my elders. The Athanasian Creed. Modalism affirms that there is one God who is one divine person, who manifests himself as three different persons, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no Father, there is no Son, and there is no Holy Spirit. There's just one God who pretends to be all of them, and one person who pretends to be all of them. Very interesting. <coughs> Trinitarianism, on the other hand, uh, we do our best to collect all of the biblical data concerning the nature of God and the three persons identified as God, okay? So to begin with, the Bible teaches that there's but one God that is one divine essence or nature, okay? In fact, when you think of uh, the, the generic term for God, try not to think of a person, but think of a nature, of an essence, okay? And when we talk about the unity of the essence of God, there's just no way around that fact. There's no way around it. Isaiah 43.10 says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. Now the Lord is to be uh, uh, differentiated from the word God because God is a generic term, whereas Lord, Jehovah, is the personal covenant name of God. 
Okay? No human being is ever referred to as Yahweh in the Bible. He's referred to as some other words translated as Lord, but never as Yahweh. Okay? He says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Just one. Isaiah 44, 8, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Now, if God is omniscient, it would be very arrogant of us to say, oh no, there's more than one God. When God says, I, I don't know of a single one. Okay? That's right. That's right. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? This passage is called the Shema, uh, which means to listen up. Hear, O Israel. The word uh, hear there is Shema in Hebrew. It's, it's the most fundamental part of the Jewish confession of faith, which is staunchly monotheistic, that there is but one God. So Yahweh, therefore the word Lord, the God of the Bible, is a unity. Okay? There's only one divine essence. Uh, to affirm anything else just stands in contradiction to how God revealed himself. Okay? So you're just arguing with God if you think there's another divine essence out there. But, so there's one divine essence, but as we exhaust the biblical data, we discover that there are three persons both claiming the same essence and they're also referred to as having the same essence. So God the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are all said to possess the divine essence of God. They're all deity. Let me just give you a small sample and we'll move on. The Father is God, according to Jesus, Paul, and Peter, and John. Uh, you look at Matthew 5, 7. There's no comma between Peter and John. Romans 1, 7, 1 Peter 1, 2, and 1 John 1, 2. And I said, that is just a, those are off the top of my head. There are tons and tons of verses that would affirm this same truth. Jesus is God, according to John, Thomas, Paul, Peter. John 1, 1. Uh, John 20, verse 8, Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1. Both Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 utilize a grammar, uh, a Greek rule of grammar called the Granville Sharps rule. They they both say our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Great God and Savior, because of the, the, the rule there in the Greek, has no exceptions. They're talking about the same person. Our great God and Savior is Jesus Christ. Okay, both of them use the same um, grammatical construction. Oh, 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 yeah, and then by God the Father, Hebrews chapter 1, 8 through 14. I love that section because God the Father, uh, in that, those texts there, he turns and he starts speaking to the Son. And he calls him God, and he calls him the ruler and the creator of the universe, calls him eternal, and calls him the object of angelic praise. He's like saying, that's my son. Okay, that's my son. You remember Thomas, after he feels the scar on Jesus' hand and side, what does he say to Jesus? My Lord and my God. 
Does Jesus correct him? No. When the boys are all together on the boat and Jesus calms the sea, they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And it says they worshiped him. Did Jesus stop that nonsense? No. No. The revelation struck them. They were acting appropriately. Holy Spirit is God, according to Jesus, Peter, Paul, John 6, 63, uh, Acts 5, 3 through 4, Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and he says, you haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God, calls the Holy Spirit God. Uh, Paul says the Lord is the Spirit, and he means Jehovah. It's very interesting. So the Trinity, one divine essence, which the Bible calls God, this divine essence consists of three distinct persons who the Bible identifies as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is not three gods, as Mormonism asserts, or two gods, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Uh, that's contradicting the unity of God. Okay? The Trinity does not consist of one person, as the modalist insists, that contradicts the plurality of persons throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament. <clears throat> uh, also, when you explore the, what the Bible says about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it attributes all of deity to them, also the acts of deity. For example, all three persons of the Trinity are said to be the Creator. They're all said to be the Savior. They're all said to be eternal and all said to be infinite. And what I always think is interesting is Jesus said, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. It also says that God the Father raised him from the dead. And it says that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Very interesting. Okay. So one divine essence, three distinct persons. When you read the Athanasian Creed, it does such a beautiful job so that you don't confound or confuse their persons or blend them. But they remain distinct. Okay. And it's really interesting how they break down uh, all the things pertaining to the Trinity. I think you'll like it. Okay, I got, let me do the outline. Uh, I stole this one from Norman Geisler as well. I usually steal his outlines. Not always, though. I only steal them when they're well done. So in his outline, he talks about the consolation of God. This is the, the simple outline, chapter 1 through 7. The solicitation for God's people chapter 8 through 9, and the vindication for God's apostle, chapter 10 through chapter 13. So the consolation of God, it's first for the minister, okay, that's uh, an explanation in chapter 1 through 2, talking about all of Paul's sufferings, the things that he's endured, okay, and then, uh, then consolation of God in the ministry, um, Paul had the, the pleasure of just being the bad guy. And when he was done with it, he always felt terrible. And God had always come to him and comfort him. Paul, you're doing the right thing. Come on, keep going, keep going. And then comfort to those who received ministry. Then there's solicitation for God's people. You remember this is the uh, exhortation to giving. There's an explanation for giving. Uh, this is by far the largest block of instruction regarding New Testament giving. Okay, it's the largest one. And what is interesting, uh, as we've already talked about the Old Covenant being made obsolete, there's no command to tithe in the New Testament. 
There's only the, the Spirit moving on people to be generous, okay? And to prove that there's no tithe, Paul says, let each person give as he purposes in his own heart. If tithing is commanded, you don't get to purpose in your heart what you want to give. You have to give a tithe, okay? Paul doesn't say that. He says, he uses similar language concerning the Sabbath. He says, one man esteems one day, another man esteems another day. He says, let every man decide for himself, because there's no Sabbath law in the New Testament. Okay, interesting. And then vindication of God's apostle. Um, as I said before, this last section of the book is written to a minority in the church who are challenging uh, Paul's apostolic credentials. Now, it's pretty hard to do ministry if your credentials are being challenged. Okay? Paul is trying to um, teach doctrine. He's trying to enforce doctrine. And people are saying, you're not an apostle. You can't tell me what to do. And so Paul has to defend himself, and, um, and he does a pretty good job. But as he's defending himself, he's talking about how uncomfortable he is with doing it. Now, the greatest offense for his apostolic office, Paul says, was the miracles that I performed. He's, he calls these, the signs of an apostle were done before you. Mighty works and miracles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Also, when Paul talks about the, the credentials for an apostle in other places, they had to be personally appointed by Christ. They had to witness the resurrection. And so when people say they're apostles today, I got some questions for them, okay? Uh, they don't meet the credentials. So, and that concludes 2 Corinthians. I didn't think I was gonna make it, but I got 30 seconds left. All right, if you have any questions, uh, I'll, I can definitely talk to you afterwards. Let's go ahead and pray. Please stand up. I'll get you out of here. Curious to see how many people are at church Sunday with the coronavirus scare. We were down this last Sunday. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Father, um, Lord, thanks for your word. I thank you that your word is consistent, that Paul is consistent with the author of Hebrews, if, if he's not the author of Hebrews, but with Peter and John and Jude and James. And Lord, I thank you that your nature is consistently upheld throughout the scriptures, that your redemptive plan for us, your love for us, Lord, your righteousness. And... Uh, I just pray that we would be encouraged by that. Pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has questions about who you are, about your nature, your personhood, Lord, that, uh, Lord, your word would be the thing that by your spirit would clear that up and they would know who their God is indefinitely and they would trust you. And, uh, so Lord, thank you so much. We just love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.